Wow, this is an urgent story from the gospel this morning. Don't you feel the urgency in it? Mark's gospel, by nature, has a real forward momentum. You heard the word immediately repeated in two sentences in a row, and this is not the only time in Mark's gospel where things happen immediately. It's not a very long gospel. It's the shortest of all of them. And Jesus is always on the move. There is an urgency to the message. There's a rendering of Mark's gospel called Mark, Marked. It's a graphic novel. It came out, I don't know, maybe 10 years ago, illustrating, as a graphic novel does, the gospel according to Mark. And you see vividly in there that there is a conflict between the kingdom that Jesus has come to begin and initiate and the Roman Empire. I have a little bit of familiarity with the urgency that's described in this gospel passage at risk of seeming um, like I was being sacrilegious. I've had moments of arriving at home with someone meeting me at the door and saying to me, Mom, I need you right now to come and to do this. Maybe other parents have had that same experience. And so you are not to touch or look or talk to anybody or anything until you follow said child to the desired action. But there are occasions when someone, in the, on, while I'm on my path, yells out that there's no more toilet paper in the bathroom in which they're seated. And so one has to divert one's attention just for a minute to this more urgent matter. It's time sensitive. And then the dedication again to continue on to the person who met me at the door. That's the image that came to my mind when I imagined Jesus stepping onto the seashore. He'd made his way across the Sea of Galilee, this beautiful little sea that was pocked with little communities around, about 200 in, in population, each little town. And he journeyed across that sea. And the people on the other side were anticipating him, and they meet him at the water, including the leader of a synagogue, who falls at Jesus' feet and begs that he come and heal his daughter. The two stories of healing in Mark's gospel are about life and death. This is serious stuff. People aren't going to survive without Jesus' help. And so Jairus throws himself at Jesus' feet, and Jesus says, I will come with you, and follows him. And the crowd follows him too, and they press in on him. And a woman touches him in the midst of all of that. This is about life and death. I recently um, shared some prayers with someone who was going through a medical um, challenge, filled with fear at the impending date of procedure. I sent them several prayers to give them something to do in the midst of their anxiety. And I said in the email, these don't specifically speak about health but they do remind you that God's got you. I wonder if this first prayer would have been one that the woman, who's unnamed in Mark's gospel, and Jairus would have prayed. Regard, O Lord, with your fatherly compassion, all who are disquieted and tense, who cannot lose themselves either in happy work by day or in restful sleep by night, who looking within do not know themselves and looking to you, do not find you.
Lead them, we pray, out of clangor into quietude, out of futility into usefulness, out of despair into the sure serenity of truth. Teach them to believe that you are faithful and that your love hopes all things and endures all things, that all the darkness in the world, even the inner blackness of the soul, cannot quench one small candle of fidelity. Give them your perspective, your humor, your gift of tranquility and poise. Be so patient with them that they may learn to be patient with themselves. So firm with them that they may lean on you. So persistent in leading that they may venture out and find pasture in the sunny fields of your kingdom, where all who follow your shepherding may find gladness and delight. In the name of earth's most calm and daring son, word of God and master of humanity, our Savior, Jesus Christ. This is about life and death. This description of this disquietude, the inability to distract yourself by busyness at day and rest at night because the concerns are so great that they are all-consuming and they block out any sign of recognition of God's presence. That's what this prayer is about, and I bet that that's what that woman and Jairus were feeling. That's their urgency. But the story's power is even more powerful than the urgency that's presented because you see the woman who is unnamed is bleeding, hemorrhaging, Now, if you remember the rules carried out through the temple and adopted by those that were Jewish followers, that you didn't touch blood. And if you did touch blood, you had to be set aside for several days. It it messed up your life. So here is a woman who touches Jesus, and she has been bleeding, and he draws attention to her. That's why she comes in fear and trembling. She is about to put herself at risk, and Jesus at risk, and all the other people who are squished up beside him. They're all going to wonder if they touched her, or if she touched them. And out of their fear, they might respond in some violent and destructive way. And so it's with fear and trembling that she acknowledges herself in front of Jesus. She doesn't want things to get worse. And she doesn't want it to get worse for him. But it's about life and death. And sometimes life and death calls us into a new way of being, gives us the strength we need to reach out beyond our comfort zone. Times of illness can be holy times. Not that these times of illness alleviate the suffering and the pain and the fear, but they can be opportunities to discover the power of God's work in you. They can be opportunities to discover God in new and transforming ways, just as this woman did. She believed that Jesus would heal her. She believed that he was someone who, if she even touched his cloak, she would be healed. That's what she believed, but it hadn't been tested yet. And she threw herself into her belief, and in that was made whole, transformed, And not only was she transformed, but the people around her. Furthermore, then, Jesus goes to Jairus' house. Now, this is also a radical thing, because having just learned that he came in contact with a bleeding person, 
Jesus should have been whisked off outside of the city walls for that time of rest and restoration so that it would be assured that he would not pass on any further disease to people who would come in contact with. But he doesn't. He goes to Jairus' house. And you know what? Jairus is fine with that. Because this is about life and death. And he wants his daughter to live. The word that he received from people from his household that she indeed has died, don't bother the master any further. Jesus says, no, just have faith and believe and we will go. Jesus wants Jairus to hold on to what he had thought about Jesus before, that Jesus could transform a situation. And Jesus wants him to believe, hold on to that a little longer, and let's go to your house. You see from the story that when Jesus arrives, people are weeping. They're going, they're beginning the mourning ritual of someone who died young, 12 years old, 12 years old. Jesus goes into the room and takes only her parents and then laying hands on her, lifts her up and tells people, don't say anything to anyone. Now why? Because he had touched someone who was dead. Do you know what happens when you touch someone who's dead? You have to go outside of the community for a set period of time. This was about life and death. Jesus could infect all kinds of people. Just walking around, shaking hands, drinking from common cups. Jesus says, don't tell anyone, but give her something to eat. And there we realize that the girl is on her ro or the road to full recovery. It's true about us humans, right? When do you know that you're going to be okay? When you can eat. You don't leave the hospital until you can eat, right? When you have a bad cold or the flu, you lose your appetite. And when your appetite comes back, you say, I must be getting better because I'm hungry again. Just by that one little line, we see the restoration of her health and the promise of her full recovery. This is about life and death. Perhaps these would be prayers that these folks would have prayed. A prayer for courage. Fortify us, O God, with the courage which comes only from you, that in the midst of all our perils and perplexities we may find that peace which only you can give through Jesus Christ our Lord. Or perhaps a prayer for inward calm. Serene Son of God, whose will subdued the troubled waters and laid to rest the fears of men, let your majesty master us, your power of calm control us, that for our fears we may have faith and for our disquietude perfect trust in you, who does live and govern all things, world without end. What do we do when we're faced with times of life and death? I dare say, my friends, that our society is sick. We are at a crucible of life and death. Each day brings this, this to our attention in one way or another. Things that we thought were secure are not. And we wonder, what's the way forward to full health as a society? 
How is it that God can restore us to wholeness as people? I think there are three things that we need God's healing power in. We need God's healing power in the objectification of creation. We treat creation as an object. We lump it together, whether it be nature, whether it be by race, whether it be by gender, whether it be by sexuality, by socioeconomic groups, in the lumping of together of people or of all creation, we objectify it. We say those things are those people. And we treat it as an object that we can or can't take off the shelf to address. The interesting thing is to move through into a healing place is to step back and to become in relationship with creation. Relationship with the other, whoever the other is. To hear from them what they value and prioritize in our shared createdness. We need healing from our propensity for objectification. We need healing of our value, our overvalue of time and money. So often, those become the things that become the deciding factors of our actions, of our decisions, of our considerations. We elevate efficiency. We prioritize convenience. This is a sickness that will surely lead to our destruction. We need God's healing power to bring time and money to things that can be used, that we're free to use, into the service of God. And that might mean they don't have the prioritization that we're accustomed to giving them. We need healing from that. And we need healing from the belief that something isn't possible if we can't imagine it. This is a temptation that finds us at every corner, at every crucible. The temptation to believe that something is impossible because we can't imagine it. I remember the disciples, after Jesus' death on the cross, gathered together, huddled together in the upper room because they could only imagine what was to come. They locked the door, if you remember. Surely people are going to be on the hunt for us. What's our strategy? How are we going to go after them? How are we going to fight back? And if you remember, in the darkness and fear of that space, Jesus enters in. Gives them the peace that they need to live as followers of him. They're not sure how to do it. And if you read in the book of Acts, you watch them figure out what that means. Decision after decision, what does this mean for us in relationship to one another? What does this mean in relationship to the communities we're engaging in? Whether it be the Roman Empire, or the people of Galatia, or the people of Corinth. What does this mean? How do we do this? How do we carry the transforming love of God into this place? And Paul reminds us, in his letter to the Corinthians, his second letter. In this matter, I'm giving you advice. It is appropriate for you, who began last year not only to do something, but even to de desire to do something. Now finish doing it, so that your eagerness may be matched by completing it according to your means. For if the eagerness is there, the gift is acceptable according to what one has, 
not according to what one does not have. I do not mean that there should be relief for others and pressure on you, but it is a question of a fair balance between your present abundance and their need, so that their abundance may be for your need, in order that there may be a fair balance. As it is written, the one who had much did not have too much, and the one who had little did not have too little. This is not a political statement. This is not a call for a socialist reality. It's a call for relationship. Relationship in Jesus. And that is on every single one of us. If anything, in this crucible, I've become more aware of how I don't want the things that I value to rest solely on an elected official. I don't want that. I think it's too, too vulnerable for the things that I feel are important. And the only way any of that is going to change is if I actually develop relationships with other people. And we together find the value in our relationship with one another. Now, I'm really good at the relationships I have. I foster them. Many of them are in my house, which makes it really convenient. But what about the other ones? The people whose shoulders I don't touch as I pass. Faces that I'm not familiar with. Stories that I haven't heard. We're all in this together. Our, our common humanity, our createdness. God is the ruler of all, including those who are my enemies. And so I am challenged by Paul's teaching and the gospel that Jesus shared with his disciples to be in relationship with all that is created. I can't do it perfectly, and Paul says, don't worry about that. It's your eagerness that's going to get you further than you thought. And God values that eagerness. Your desire to trust God with your life will be used well by God. And that's what you have control over. So Paul urges us, just as we're urged in the gospel lesson this morning, to find that our strength doesn't come in our power. Our strength comes in our shared vulnerability as created beings. Our security doesn't come in our dominion. Our security comes in being in right relationship with the one who made us out of love. And that's our message, each one of us, as we leave this place today. The ills of our society are too big for anyone to fix. They're too big for you to fix on your own. They're too big for an elected official to fix, no matter how long their tenure in service might be. But what can remain is our commitment to God and our love for one another. Nothing can take that away. And if you read last week's passage from 2 Corinthians, Paul reminds us of this. And so I leave you with a final prayer. A prayer that was also on this list that I shared with that particular individual. For strength to persevere in faith. Lord God Almighty, for no merit on our part, you have brought us out of death into life out of sorrow into joy. Put no end to your gifts. Fulfill your marvelous acts in us and grant to us who have been justified by faith the strength to persevere in that faith. 
Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the Holy Spirit, one God, forever and ever. Amen.